So it was 20, almost 20 years ago, or 19 actually. So my son was just over a year old and he started showing some signs of not engaging with with my husband and I. He was our firstborn. He, he was an infant, but he didn't make eye contact. Um, he looked often away. He also stared a lot at moving things. So the best way I can describe it is if you picture um, an old stereo, I don't know if they even still have these where the, the, you see the digital bars moving, he would sit in front of that as an infant and just stare at the moving parts of a stereo. And he did that just even as he was just learning to sit. He was a really fussy baby and we had some suspicions that something was not right. You just heard from Connie Putterman, a master's student in translational health research at the University of Toronto, reflecting back to when her son initially started presenting with symptoms of autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. Since her son was diagnosed with ASD in 2000, Connie has become a strong advocate for autism research. She has a TEDx talk on the realities of having a child with autism and is the founder of the Canada-Israel Autism Research Initiative. You'll hear more from Connie throughout the episode as she discusses her personal experience of navigating her son's ASD diagnosis. I'm Thamia. And I'm James. Welcome to episode 57 of Raw Talk. The prevalence of ASD in the year 2000 was far less than it is today. About 1 in 150 children were diagnosed 20 years ago. Now that number has gone up to approximately 1 in 60. As the prevalence of ASD has increased, so has our understanding of this condition. On this episode, we'll hear from scientists at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, as well as the Hospital for Sick Children, who are conducting cutting-edge research to elucidate the genetic basis and heterogeneity of autism spectrum disorder. Before we dive into their research, let's go back to Connie describing her initial response to receiving her son's diagnosis 20 years ago. We brought him to our pediatrician, and our pediatrician um, suggested we see a developmental pediatrician at SickKids. And um, with with some advocacy on my part to get an appointment, Mm -hmm. um, we got him in at a, a very young age. And he was seen by the developmental pediatrician who ran the Autism Research Unit and Child Development uh, Center at SickKids, and he was diagnosed right away. So it was, again, like I say, it it's still resonates with me when you ask me, but it was a long time ago. And, you know, the, um, the emotions that I felt then, they stay with you in the experience of feeling lost and that's something that I still remember. And so I can still relate now to parents who might have experienced that and that feeling of being lost and not knowing what to do. It's almost like falling down a rabbit hole. I think about, you know, that, no that one sort of to help you pull right, you out. Right. There, right. And you yeah. say, oh my goodness, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. So that's the initial feelings of first learning about autism and not really knowing what it was. So even though I didn't know a lot about autism, I started reading up a little bit about it while we were we were pursuing this avenue. And as soon as she said it, I felt absolute fear and also relief because I knew she was right. And the fact that the pediatrician was so definitive was a blessing because it meant that we could then focus on figuring out what kind of interventions and treatments we needed to do. Connie's son's pediatrician was able to give them a definitive diagnosis. But what does that really mean? How is autism defined? We go to Dr. Menchuan Lai, a clinician scientist at CAMH, who is studying the cognitive and neurobiological basis of autism, specifically focusing on sex differences. Autism spectrum disorder, this is a medical term uh, used in the DSM-5 system, currently defined as a medical condition that's early onset one, characterized by two major domains of 
issues, one being social communication challenges that involves social emotional reciprocity, communications via verbal or nonverbal means, or understanding or managing social relationships, understanding social you know social aspects. And the other domain is what we call restricted and repetitive behavior, which is characterized by stereotyped behaviors, repetitions, uh, narrow interest, adherence to routines, and sensory like atypical sensory experiences and these are meant to be what we call early onset so that usually you know shows their characteristics early in life you know in the first three years of life you'll see something going on and then it's meant to be kind of like persistent so it, uh, it's like it's part of one's like makeup so it's like the characteristics are usually long-lasting but they will change in their like quality and extent um, this was considered as a purely uh, sort of medical diagnosis in the past, but now people are aware that it's also part of human variations. So now people are using more of the terms like autism spectrum conditions or simply calling autism spectrum or autism because people who are having autism spectrum disorder diagnosis do not necessarily always have dysfunction or disability, but they always also have other sort of cognitive strength and characteristics those are not necessarily disabilities. So it's kind of like having a dual nature. You have the variations and differences, but also it's highly related to disabilities and adaptive malfunction as well. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, is the resource used to define and classify mental disorders. In 2013, a new version of the DSM was released in which the diagnosis of three separate disorders, autism disorder, Asperger syndrome, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified were collapsed and classified under one umbrella term, autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Stephanie Amos, a clinician scientist at CAMH, told us more about this. It really hasn't changed how we diagnose autism. We still diagnose autism the same way. So the way we diagnose autism in the clinic is talking to uh, parents, family, about what the person has been like from a very early age to figure out whether they've had real problems in, uh, with respect to social communication and uh, inflexibility of behaviors that um, has always been there and has caused them impairment. So that's part of the diagnosis, as well as spending some time with the individual themselves to, to see whether the criteria uh, for autism spectrum disorder is, is present, and then pulling all that information together to make a clinical opinion. So the way we diagnose has not changed. Over the past decade or so, we've come to understand that there's a strong genetic basis to ASD. To learn more about this complex topic and what it might mean for families, we reached out to Dr. Steve Scherer, professor at UFT, as well as the director of the Center for Applied Genomics at SickKids Hospital. We know that autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, I'll call it ASD or autism, depending on how I present things in my presentation, um, is very complex. There's actually at least 100 different forms of autism that we know about. And these can be uh, very severe forms of autism that affect functioning and language to less severe forms of autism. So autism can come about uh, in high-functioning individuals, so-called neurotypical individuals even, and just have subtle signs of autism. And often when I present to lay audiences, we, we present autism as every person is like a snowflake. They're, they have their own form of autism. And that's why we're doing genetic research, to try to understand what the genetic factors are that contribute to these different types of autism. So in Ontario here, uh, there's roughly 5,000 or so genetic tests done per year on individuals, mainly with a suspected diagnosis of autism. So um, there's a technology called chromosome microarray technology that scans the DNA to look for these copy number variable genes I talked about. And in fact, that's done here at the Hospital for Sick Children. But it's presented uh, to the families in a, in a confirmatory way. So there, there may be a suspected diagnosis, the child's having some challenges, for example, and we don't know why, and then the genetic test actually is pretty straightforward. You can do it, you take some blood, you make DNA, and you can do the experiment in about 48 hours or so and then check to see if any of these so-called autism genes may be affected in that individual. Okay, so that's happening all of the time, but in a confirmatory way. 
in roughly maybe 10% of families, when they have a second child, if the first is on the spectrum, the second child is also on the spectrum. So family members, uh, families want to know very early on if they have a family history, if later born children may also exhibit signs of autism because there are quite effective behavioral intervention therapies that exist, uh, but you have to start early. So if there's um, a family history and you can identify that, say, a later-born child or a relative, you know, a relative, a cousin, for example, uh, is tested and they have the same genetic alteration, those children need to be followed much closer. And then if they develop signs of autism, enroll right away with a genetic confirmation that they should be paid special attention to. So at any given time in Toronto, there's, uh, I'm told there's about 500 or so or more children who are waiting to get a formal diagnosis from a developmental pediatrician. There's just so many new diagnoses coming. We can do the genetics much faster. And for about 20% of those kids, we could do a genetic test and and explain to their families, we found a genetic clue uh, and that genes are probably involved in this this child uh, and that they should actually then be characterized as being on the autism spectrum, looked at closer, and then get into the right protocols for, for therapies and things. So that's from the diagnostic. Now, I I just quickly want to touch on what's coming in the science going forward. In the last decade, really for the very first time now, we've identified these genetic pathways. There there is no effective medicine that's on the market yet for the the essential features of autism, okay, so the core features of autism. There's no medicine that modulates those right now. And the reason for that, we think, is that we didn't know what the genetic pathways were up until recently. Mm -hmm. And and we do now uh, for for some forms of autism. So there are are targets, and there's several biotech and pharmaceutical companies now making medications, drugs, that will hopefully modulate those genetic pathways. Uh, And some of those are going through clinical trial testing now here at Holland Blurview. We work very closely with them. And what we're trying to do is to match the genetics to the biology and how the, these individuals respond to the medicines to make it this is a so-called precision medicine or a personalized approach. Um, that's all happened in the last few years because we, we finally have some genetic targets now. In addition to the complex genetic pathways contributing to ASD development and the huge variation in presentation and severity of symptoms, individuals often present with comorbidities. As Dr. Lai explains, the prevalence of other mental and physical health conditions can be higher in individuals with ASD. The general finding in, in, in the field is that people with autism or on the autism spectrum tend to have heightened rates of a range of other health conditions, including physical health and mental health conditions. So in the domain of physical health, we know there's heightened rate of epilepsy. There is heightened rate of um, gastrointestinal problems. There's heightened rate of immunological issues like uh, allergies and atopic dermatitis, atop- or a range of atopy or even asthma. And in the neurodevelopmental and mental health-related domains, we know that it's highly associated with other forms of developmental disability, such as intellectual de- developmental disability or intellectual disability or uh, language disorders, learning disabilities, ADHDs tick disorders, Tourette syndromes, and other early onset neurodevelopmental conditions. And just an example, the rates of uh, intellectual disability in autism in general seems to be like around 50% from the data nowadays. So it's really highly co- correlated. And in terms of the rates of mental health diagnosis, our team uh, with uh, Dr. Stephanie, Stephanie Amos and other people recently did a meta-analysis, and we found that um, the estimated proportion of autistic people who have a concurrent mental health diagnosis is roughly about 22-23% of them having a confirmed diagnosis of anxiety disorder, about 10% of them having depression, basically depressive disorders, and about 5-6% to 6% of them having when they're older, having um, schizophrenia spectrum disorder or bipolar disorder. And again, about, uh, you know, like 10%-ish of them having obsessive compulsive disorders and other what we call disruptive behavior disorder diagnosis. Now, the reasons for these high co-occurrence could be multiple. So one could be that there are shared biological underpinnings. And this could be, I mean, demonstrated by issues like epilepsy, intellectual disability, 
or gastrointestinal issues, and not to say sleep disorders is also quite prevalent. So it seems to be possible that there is some underlying shared biology. In the mental health domain, some of them are likely also related to、um, something happening early on, like anxiety and ADHD. So it could be, you know, shared biological pathways or even like early neuro- neurodevelopment that's contributing to those. And actually, there are quite a bit of、um, developmental psychology studies as well as genetic studies showing、um, high shared genetic variances as well as like. Early phenotypic variances in these domains. Interestingly, there are other domains that might be related also to the like you know, living with autism, or you know how the person is treated by the environment, because the environment tends to be quite challenging for many autistic people if there's no accommodations provided or if if there's lots of misunderstanding. So the formulation for that would be you know the high rates of depression and the high rates of suicidal risk, even like. Unfortunately, success rate of suicide, mortality due to suicide, basically, are like remarkably higher in people on the spectrum, and it's pretty likely that these are related to the like like the the life experiences,、um, you know, being on the spectrum. There could also be some like shared shared behavior characteristics, but the problem lies in the psychiatric diagnosis system themselves. That they, they don't really differentiate things well, or they actually don't have a clear distinction between those concepts. So, for example, there are studies showing that adults with autism spectrum disorder or having been diagnosed on the autism spectrum, if you conduct structured interview for personality disorders, you actually get high rates of personality disorder diagnosis. Like, you know, it could be up to more than fifty percent of them will meet with. Diagnostic criteria for one personality disorder diagnosis, and the problem there is that is that true co-occurrence or it's simply some phenotypic overlap, and the psychiatrists and you know people defining these conditions haven't really you know gathered together and talk about what are the what what are the distinctions between the two and what are the conceptual overlaps between those things. So that's still kind of like for me, that's still an unresolved issue. So some of the core currents, especially about personality disorders, may may be actually due to the definition、um, problems that people really haven't ironed them out. As Dr. Lai mentioned, about half of individuals with ASD have an intellectual disorder, also called an ID. This is quite a large proportion. However, this group is underrepresented in research. As ID is often part of the exclusion criteria for studies. Actually, a very nice recent meta-analysis, systematic review meta-analysis, just published by Ginny Russell et al., looking at the bias towards excluding people with intellectual disability in autism research in general. And what they found was that actually it could be said like more than eighty percent or even ninety percent of studies are、uh, are actually excluding people、uh, with intellectual disabilities. When it comes to autism research of of different kinds, from intervention to neurobiology to psychology and other eyes, other kinds, this might be less of an issue for studies involving early interventions, because at the early stages, like many studies are focusing on, you know, like child's development in general, so they wouldn't use intellectual disability as exclusion criteria. But for studies in later ages, like you know, school age and even beyond for adulthood, especially for neuroimaging studies or other studies that require some cognitive. You know, performances. That's the case. That the, the studies aren't、um, designed in a way that that is adequate to 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 detect the the domains of characteristics that you would hope to detect in people with intellectual intellectual disability and autism. So that's a huge、uh, heterogeneity issue, and also there's a recent study actually showing that maybe the family history, men, family mental health history associates. Are somehow different between those people who on the autism spectrum and having intellectual disability versus those who's on the spectrum but do not have intellectual disability. So some additional suggestions that well maybe there's quite a bit of heterogeneity lies in between whether you have intellectual disability or not or the level of intellectual disability that you have. That's just one source of、um, heterogeneity, which is related to your cognitive abilities. There could also be related to your sex, your gender.、Um, there could also be related to your cognitive aspects. 
So, for example, we know that there are people who, despite the the idea that、uh, autism is associated with social cognitive difficulties, there are people on the spectrum who actually score quite highly on social cognitive measures, versus those who are actually scored really poorly on social cognitive measures, and they all have a clinical label of autism. But whether the cognitive basis, as well as the neurobiological basis associated with their social cognition, may actually be quite different. In addition to these sources of heterogeneity, as well as underlying genetics, there's also a lot of variation in those diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at the neurobiological level. Over the last two decades, there have been hundreds of studies devoted to understanding the brains of those diagnosed with ASD, and despite all that effort, there's still a long way to go. What we know is when we look at groups of children with autism compared to what we call healthy controls who wouldn't have a diagnosis of autism or other psychiatric disorders, the brain、uh, looks a bit different on the group level. It's not really、uh, striking differences. They're Really quantitative differences, where we know that aspects of white matter that connect different、uh, parts of the brain, or if you're looking at、uh, brain activity, that there are slight differences at the group level between people with autism versus healthy controls. But if you Uh, look from study to study. There's not a lot of consistency, and that's the thing that makes it difficult that,、um, to interpret. So there's a lot of heterogeneity. So on the whole, we can say that in autism, the、uh, brain imaging science has told us that there are indications that the brain might be less connected, or have a different way of being connected than in people who don't have autism. But exactly what the differences are. Um, at the disorder level, we still don't know because each individual with autism is probably very different from every other individual. And we actually have some research that shows us that if you look at a group of healthy controls versus a group of people with autism, healthy controls their brains look more like the other healthy controls. And the brains of people with autism look very different from each other, and are more different from each other than the group of healthy controls. So we know that there's a lot of variation in the brain, and maybe that's because the brain develops a little bit differently, and so there's different strategies of doing the same tasks. So there's still a lot of heterogeneity that we really haven't figured out yet.、Um, at the whole, we think that maybe connections are different. Across the brain in people with autism, but exactly where and and whether that is really consistent a lot across people, our research is telling us no. Many people may have preconceived notions of what someone with ASD might look like, how they behave, and how they interact with others. The reality is, there's no single way to characterize or recognize someone who has ASD. I think a lot of people, when it comes to just Thinking about attributes that people with autism or neurodiverse students have, they're not really thinking very broadly. So they're thinking that there must be something very identifiably different about this student or about this person, and that's not really the case. That was Roya Botlani, the coordinator of student learning and transition at the University of Toronto Accessibility Services. She also runs the Social Association for Students with Autism, or SASA. A group that meets weekly on campus and provides a space for UFT students with ASD to connect with their peers. Roya told us about some of the things she's realized through her work with this group. Autism is really interesting in that sense, and that because it is a spectrum disorder, it is very varied, and the way that the students are navigating their disability on campus is very different per student. That's the beauty of neurodiverse students and neurodiverse people is that no one person looks or acts the same way. Dr. Amos has similar experiences with people she sees in her clinic. If you were to come to my clinic and you would meet、um, some of the people with autism that come in, they're really different from each other. If we even take females versus males that come in、um, and get a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, their presentation of autism is really different. 
we see huge variation in terms of people's interest in uh, social interactions. So some people are uh, not that interested in having uh, friendships who get the diagnosis of autism. Some people with the diagnosis really, really want to uh, relate to other people and they have a lot of difficulty figuring out what the best strategy is to make friends or keep friends or interact with other people, but they're really motivated to. So there's a lot of uh, variation in that regard. There's a lot of variation in terms of mental health diagnoses that are uh, also present. So people with autism spectrum disorder will have higher rates of other uh, mental health diagnoses, so higher rates of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, irritability, or emotional dysregulation. So there's a lot, a lot of variation in presentation. And then uh, development is a moving target. So um, younger people can look different than older people. Um, sometimes uh, social difficulties can be more pronounced in younger people. And then as people get older, they learn um, strategies to work around their difficulties and they practice and they get better. So there's a lot, a lot of variation. It's kind of like asking, you know, how different people are different. You see lots of different ways that autism spectrum disorder uh, presents itself. And that's why it's still an area where we're learning a lot and trying to figure out what is different about the brain and about people who have that diagnosis uh, to try and support them better. Dr. Lai's research focuses specifically on sex and gender differences in ASD. It was previously thought that ASD was much more prevalent in males, at a ratio as high as 10 males to 1 female. It's now known that the difference in prevalence between genders is much smaller. Autism was um, sort of conceptualized in the past as a male-predominant condition, and so like the male-female ratio in the past was even reported as as high to eight to ten to one, so like eight to ten male to one female, and that was about like thirty years ago. And um, the the commonly quoted number was about four to five to one male to female. But nowadays we understand that from research showing that well, if you look at data from the clinical databases or educational databases, you see a male-female ratio of 4 to 5 to 1. But if you look at the general population-based data, it's about closer to 3 to 1. So this implies that there might be some under-recognitions of girls and women on the spectrum. And by definition, males and females or other genders, when they're diagnosed with autism, they share similarities. So these similarities are defined by the social communication challenges as well as the restricted repetitive behaviors. So what may be different are the content of the certain characteristics. Um, so let's give you an example. Narrow interest is one of the characteristics for autism spectrum. And because of the research was primarily based on males, in the past, people's conception about narrow interest would be mathematics, um, dinosaurs, um, space, trains and transportation systems. But interestingly, now we know that many of the narrow interests probably in girls and women have the same intensity and the same exclusivity, meaning that um, they are focusing on this interest but not others. But the content could be related to animals, could be related to literature, could be um, related to fashions, um, sub-operas, or like really things that... um, may be viewed as not so idiosyncratic or atypical. Um, that may be one thing that um, that's related to what we call gender differences in autism in terms of behavior presentation. Another one, interestingly, is that it seems to be the case girls who are on the spectrum, especially those who are recognized later in life, tend to show more like, social interest and social motivations. And there are more uh, initiatives to, for example, making friends probably still encounter difficult um, scenarios, especially understanding or navigating the complicated like friendship um, processes. And also we learned that, uh, again, for those who are recognized later in life, they tend to um, uh, learn how to fit in. So there's a term what we used called camouflaging, or people using compensation or masking, basically you know, representing that um, girls who are on the spectrum may have a higher tendency to learn how to act neurotypical by learning and then maybe because of that they are recognized later in life or they're even misrecognized as not having autism but having other mental health conditions instead. The first thing that um, I learned from working with autistic girls and women and their family is that um, 
the the life experiences do matter. And when I say life experiences, that how they present themselves in social environments, in fitting in, in you know, in 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 facing all the life challenges, are associated with how they are affected by the by the gendered or cultural norms. So they're actually exploring not only social norms, but they're also exploring gender norms. So when I say that, one example would be that hypothetically. Why we might observe more desire to fit in, or camouflaging, or masking in girls and women on the spectrum who are not recognized early in life, maybe that is because that they are actually expected to 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 be more social, and they're expected to be um, to 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 make friends. They're expected to. Uh, to to be friendly and to have patience and to be empathetic and to they, they have lots of expectations, which would actually be doubly challenging for them. Maybe even compared to boys on the spectrum, simply because they may actually have similar level of difficulties, but expectations are are higher longstandingly for for girls. And then and then maybe because of that, they're putting into much more effort to to learn. And we we heard from parents maybe using the term、uh, "people pleaser" to describe many girls on the spectrum, and they they struggle, but they they struggle to fit in, and it's challenging, and it's consuming lots of mental energies, basically, and that has an impact because that could bring the sense of exhaustion, the sense of、um, the sense of even like lose of identity for themselves at the later stage of life, or. Mental health consequences, anxiety, depression—many of them may be related to these. So I think the the, the first thing that 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 stood up、uh, stood out for me is really the the impact of gendered environment and gendered contexts to how they present themselves in the social environment, and maybe that is why that many of them actually really need a lot of time to be with themselves and relaxed and de-stress. Because they're constantly acting when there is social interactions and interpersonal interactions. Where did this misconception come from that ASD is so much more prevalent in males than in females? Part of this is that the original concept of ASD was developed based on research and case studies made up primarily of males. This has led to a bias in recognition of symptoms in girls compared to boys. Even if the underlying reasons for the behaviors are the same, in that they are reflecting social cognitive problems, repetitive behaviors, and sensory issues, however, beyond a bias in the recognition of ASD in girls, there still seems to be a greater prevalence in boys that might be related to the biology. We wanted to investigate a little bit more about where these differences come from. Are there biological differences in the brains of girls and boys with ASD? So that's something really we are working on, and also a lot of、uh, researchers in the world are are looking into more nowadays. And、um, I don't think there's a conclusion so far, to be honest.、Um, simply because, first of all, data that can you know give enough power to detect、uh, how autism like is associated with brain is not much、um, in girls, and not to say in people. Are not male, so people with other sexes or genders. So basically, because the, of the male bias, so the, the data set that's available are like prevalent with males, but not the others. So we we don't have enough power on that. The the neuroimaging data, for example, nowadays tend to have a maximum number of females with autism or autistic females. Around fifty to sixty. For the meta analysis that、um, has been conducted, this could be you know up to more than a hundred or something. But still, you know, it's not large data set at all. So we we don't have definite answer. However, from what we learned from the current available data, it seems to be the case that there seems to be more differences than similarities. So it. You tend to find if you have kind of like autism, non-autism male-female designs, it's quite likely that you get something called you know diagnosis by sex interaction, meaning that the differences between autistic and non-autistic people seems to be different in males versus females. But again, these findings are usually from relatively moderately sized data, so you know between thirty to maybe sixty a group. 
So I think there are lots of studies that needs to be done in the future to you know, replicate and reproduce these findings. As Dr. Lai mentions, emerging research shows that there may be biological differences in males versus females with autism, but not enough studies have been done to confirm this hypothesis. However, it is often the case that certain defining features of autism, such as the inability to maintain eye contact and delayed or impaired development of speech and language, are present in both sexes. Connie's son presented with these hallmark features, and we asked her how she navigated the healthcare system to address some of these symptoms. I need to write a book about it, actually, yeah. <laughs> because it's not an easy answer. Um, it, it was persistence, and it was investigation on my part, and I still think some of this applies to parents today, that I really tried to understand the needs of my child and where I thought he, he was at. I really listened to the healthcare providers that, that we did reach out to that were, I mean, there were people that we were referred to. In the, were they, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. were they like social workers or what no, kind of healthcare professionals no, were you? So it, immediately we were referred to speech and language uh, therapists and also to uh, the new government-funded ABA program in Ontario. So that, that it was called the Toronto Preschool Autism Service. So it was a government-funded ABA program, and it was new. So my son was, was one of the first kids in that program. So that was government-funded. But the other, we pursued private options as well to, to augment those. And they were uh, speech and language and occupational therapists. And we started working right away on the areas where everybody as a team felt um, he needed support. So it was it was starting at the beginning. And okay. what does that mean? Well, he didn't make eye contact, so the first thing he needed to learn was how to make eye contact. And I always go back to that as part of a plan that he needs to look first mm-hmm. and before he can do anything else. So that's, that's where we started. I guess a part of his uh his treatment was subsidized by the government like such as the um the ABA school program that you mentioned but you also had to spend money out of your own pocket because was it because the interventions weren't sufficient enough or you just wanted to maybe increase the ways in which he was looked after no i would say that it was not because it wasn't sufficient enough i think that we really strongly believe that there was a multidisciplinary approach needed and so that ABA was great for what it was starting to teach him but we needed to supplement with other things to either reinforce or to start to teach him communication skills a lot of what we focused on in the beginning was as I said eye contact but also reciprocity the idea of And it's not something that we think about Mm -hmm. if we learn it automatically, but just the idea of looking at each other and reciprocal communication in terms of relationship building, in terms of communication, in terms of eye contact, in terms of nonverbal language cues. That's all a give and take between people. And he had to learn that at the same time as all the other things he was learning in ABA. So we felt this was important to get solidified early. Mm-hmm. And, and and at a young age, and he started learning skills to to learn how to to exchange cues or language or pre language communication, and then it became language. And he needed to learn language skills, so we For focused sure. a lot yeah. on language because he was bef- he was younger than two. So if you think about it, most kids start to speak at around one and a half that age at two. So we were already tar- starting to teach him those skills. Navigating the healthcare system and the resources available for children with ASD is not straightforward. As some children with ASD enter adulthood and gain independence, there are other challenges they may begin to face that they're not prepared for. As Roya explains, there's a lack of social supports available for adults with ASD. My understanding is that there's a lot of supports for people with autism and neurodiverse people up until the age of 21. Then after that, they're expected to just have mastered everything and mastered every skill that they need to know in life. And then it's sort of they're on their own. And it would be really great to see some community resources that are focusing on adults who are neurodiverse because some of those needs 
what it looks like to, you know, navigate disability as a child is very different than what it looks like to navigate disability as an adult. Over the past few decades, there's been a lot of research devoted to improving treatment options. There's still a long road ahead of us, but progress has been made. Here's Dr. Amos elaborating on the current interventions available. So in terms of treatments that are available for people with autism spectrum disorder, um, the most widely used treatment and the one that our government uh, pays for for access to is uh, early behavioral intervention or intensive behavioral intervention. And so this is where you use a behavioral approach to uh, try and teach kids to attend to, to certain things that they don't otherwise attend to and it's supposed to be intensive for at least 20 hours a week and it's usually for a lengthy period of time and what the research says is that um, some children really improve in terms of their communication skills and their uh, functional skills and even their IQ goes up uh, when they are in that kind of intensive behavioral intervention uh, approach other than um, that type of early approach, there's lots of different types of behavioral approaches that are used in the school systems that were that can be used in an academic setting. In people who have autism spectrum disorder with typical IQ, there's uh, some good evidence that uh, social skills training can help um, with uh, certain uh, social abilities. And if you look at people's ability to do certain social tasks before and after they've done social skills training, they can improve. And there's good research that cognitive behavioral therapy can be used in autism uh, to help with anxiety disorders uh, in a similar way as uh, when kids are um, being treated with cognitive behavioral therapy who don't have autism spectrum disorder. For people who are 13 to 30, there isn't a lot that has a lot of evidence in terms of uh, improving long-term outcomes. And so that's an area that we really need more uh, treatment development. Uh, there's also uh, good research that certain medications can be helpful. So uh, stimulants and non-stimulant medications that are often used for uh, children who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder who don't have ASD can be very helpful in kids who have ASD and those symptoms. And there's also certain medications that are approved, not in Canada, but in the U.S. by the FDA uh, for treatment of irritability. So that's uh, self-injurious behaviors, aggressive behaviors towards others. So there's a number of different treatment options out there. As techniques get more sophisticated, newer treatment options have started surfacing for people with ASD, including repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS. We talked more about this non-invasive brain stimulation tool in our episodes on movement disorders, depression, and cannabis. Check them out if you want to learn more. So repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation is a form of brain stimulation where you use a magnetic uh, coil to allow for an electric current to pass into the brain and, and activate neurons that are just below the superficial cortex, like so that are just below the skull level. RTMS has become an area of a lot of excitement in research because it's um, a tool uh, that can be used for treatments and you can actually target specific areas in the brain to modify uh, brain activity and, and hopefully improve functioning. And so it's best known for, uh, as a treatment for um, depression and it's an approved treatment for depression. And uh, we're trying to look in the autism community as to whether uh, RTMS uh, can be helpful. It's become an area where people are really interested, but it's a very new area of research. Uh, so most of the studies out there are small studies with a small number of people and using different RTMS methods. So we don't know very clearly what the best method is or what the best area of the brain is to target. In my research program, we've looked at RTMS as a treatment for executive functioning deficits. So those are difficulties with shifting attention, with keeping information in your head for a short period of time, uh, with stopping yourself or, or uh, inhibiting uh, yourself from doing something. So those are kind of different executive functionings that uh, people with autism often have a difficulty with. And so we've, we've uh, just completed a study where we've had a group of 40 young people with 
uh, autism, who have typical IQ, who are about 16 to 35, um, who have felt that they have executive function difficulties have come in for a four-week intervention. And we did that study over about two and a half years. A lot of people were interested in being part of the study and they tolerated it really well. And we have uh, some promising early data that it might be helpful for a subgroup of people, but probably not for everybody. So it gets back to that issue of heterogeneity and that um, there's probably not a one-size-fits-all way of improving certain functions. And we're not treating ASD, we're actually treating executive functions. So things that people are finding are interfering with their everyday performance. Dr. Scherer is leading a groundbreaking project called Missing. It's a collaboration involving Google and Autism Speaks with the goal of creating one of the world's largest genomic databases on autism. We were invited by Autism Speaks, which is um, an international organization, but it's also run out of Manhattan and uh, out of New York City. And and we launched a project to sequence the genomes of 10,000 families with autism. It was a kind of a back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation a few of us made in the community we thought if we did that many, um, we could find all of the, the so-called low-hanging fruit or the high-impact genetic changes I talked about and, uh, and then start to really tease apart. Get that 20% number up to maybe 40%. It was really a, a hypothesis. So and just you're, you're here at a good time. We're just finishing the 10,000 this week, actually. Oh. So um, that's a huge milestone. We, yeah, so we'll be convening uh, a team of analysts uh, from around the world, but it'll be it'll be um, centralized here, and uh, we use the cloud-based computing and AI, and um, you know we have experts from everything ranging from metabolics to geneticists to physicists to you name it. There'll be different eyes looking at this data, uh, so it's it's really quite exp- exciting. Uh, this right. this will be. You mentioned our work on, on the Genome Project back in chromosome 7 when we did that in 2003. I remember sitting in a very small office. Uh, uh, there was probably 12 of us crammed in that office working hard. Uh, and now we have the whole floor here, 30,000 square feet. But the entire group will be working on one big project, which is always exciting because that, that's where there's a lot of create, creativity comes out of that kind of camaraderie and, right. and interaction. How did you go about finding those collaborators or did they kind of come to yeah, you so you had that missing name right well you know again this, this organization is really quite spectacular um and they raise money from walks across north america and pretty much every family that has autism will know about this organization uh so anyways they they you know the project we we launched it now about five years ago I think we've probably spent about $30 million on the project. The, what was, the idea was that is you just want to do the experiment once and get the data out there. And there's only certain laboratories that could do the experiment. This is one of them here in Toronto. There are others. There's maybe a half dozen or so around the world. Um, but we were focused on autism from our early days. And we had a lot of Canadian families collected already and consented. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's really important. In fact, we had 3,000 families we were following across Canada already that had signed research ethics consents to be involved in our research and for the very first time do a whole genome sequence and then put that data into a computer-based cloud, the cloud, and we did this with Google, so that any scientist that had a question on autism, so they have to, they have to apply but they can take their, and once it's approved, they can take their question to the to the missing cloud at Google mm-hmm. and ask their question for free. They don't have to pay for the sequencing. They don't have to pay for the compute time, the storage of this massive data. Right. And I'll tell you about that in a second. They can just take their question, if it's on autism or something related to autism, because it's so complex, and ask that. And And the idea was is we can get that out there. There might be some really smart person <laughs> who's got a new entry point, maybe using a deep learning approach, maybe uh, looking at a, a question we hadn't thought about before, or matching families that have different characteristics, all these different things. That could be a company. It could be an academic. It could be a student. It could actually be a citizen. It could be a person with autism. And we, we've had all these. So we have hundreds of people from around the world who are registered and who are using this data, even though we haven't got to the 10,000 yet. They're already using it, and there's been a lot of publications on this. So that was the, we made that decision, it was a little bit, probably closer to seven years ago, but we started to say, that's putting the data out five years ago. 
the very first data transfer we, we made to Google, uh, it was about five years ago, um, came from this floor. And at that time, it was the largest data transfer to Google in their history. Google. Yeah, to Google, the big, you know, arguably the world's biggest information. So this data is deep and immense. It's huge. They've learned how to deal with it. It was just at the time, this was kind of a unique data set. So anyways, this is big data. This is information science. Your genome is the ultimate form of information. And we wanted to get it out there. Um, And and the payback for us was by getting it out there, someone else paid for it. (laughs) Because I was paying this off my, my grants for a long time. And it brought a lot of smart people. So you asked about the team. We have our team here, but now we've got a worldwide virtual team looking at this data. Uh, and that's, that's exceptionally exciting because it's so complex, uh, we need as many minds thinking about it as possible. Right. Now, as, as you mentioned, much of your findings rely on the size of the data set. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what role does communicating your science and what you're trying to do to the public play in terms of encouraging families to participate and get their genome sequenced mm-hmm. so that you have more to work with? Right. So that actually hasn't been a problem for autism. It's been a problem for a lot of other disorders, diseases, conditions, depending on how you categorize what you're studying. Autism, the families are highly engaged, highly motivated. And this has been the case over the history of autism research. We've never had pro- problems enrolling families. They, they, want, they know that the answers are, are in, embedded in the science, and we need to understand the science. So they enroll. What they want is they want feedback. Uh, they want interaction. So if we find something, they want to know what it is. Uh, so, you know, here we, we have regular um, workshops with, uh, in, in Ontario with the Ontario Brain Institute. And before that, a, a few of us in our academic labs did, did this kind of thing. But we'll invite pretty much all the families enrolled in our studies to come in once or so a year uh, to see the latest research and to hear um, what we're doing next and also to ask questions. And they come for tours and things. And if we have something, the consents that they've signed is we actually will return what we think is relevant to them. If we don't find anything, because there's so many people, well, we can't always say we didn't find anything. So we do. We developed that, and it was really um, it was embedded in, in the uh, philosophy of the project of the science. That was very important, and that that was really important because when we asked them, you know, are you willing to put your data? your genome data into the cloud, even though it's protected, it's, you know, it's actually safer than it's sitting here in the high-performance computing facility, but people had to be educated on this. They, essentially, the response is, we trust the scientists involved. You know, if you guys think it's a good idea, we're okay with it. Although we checked everybody. You know, everybody had to be consented for this. Um, but sometimes the science moves faster than the, the last consent they signed. So then we have to go back and update the consent, but we just kind of ask everyone, are you guys okay with this? It's really, really important. And I think, you know, this is a, a Canadian project, uh, the relationship we have. And if you find something, we can uh, go back and actually find the people enrolled in our studies. In the United States, this is a real problem. This is one of the reasons the U.S. came up to Canada to do this, is people move around a lot more, and they, they have different health care providers and payers. And it's very hard to find the person who may have enrolled in your study. But the, the 10,000 number uh, is significant. Um, we want to think about ways to do, to do it more efficiently now, um, to have people register online on the web. Uh, I, what I didn't say is, is the advantage, too, is if they enroll in the study, the family gets deep clinical analysis. So we bring them in, and they, they, they get seen as part of the workup before we take their blood by um, you know, the top developmental pediatricians and psychiatrists in the world so we can standardize all the clinical data, so we can do a genetic and a clinical correlation later. Dr. Scherer mentioned how many families are eager to get involved with research. Connie and her family are a prime example of that. In general, I feel like a lot of focus is put on the challenges that come with caring for a child with uh, developmental disabilities. But when I read your story, it was incredibly inspiring to read as you turned this difficult experience into a very meaningful cause. I think you mentioned that you quit your job full time to focus on advocating for autism research. So can you elaborate on some of those uh, advocacy and endeavors and any projects that you're currently a part of? What inspired me really was that the way in which I learned to cope with all of my own understanding of autism and the 
the uncertainty of having uh, a child with a developmental disability is that I needed to educate myself and learn and immerse myself in understanding autism. So for me, I really needed to get involved. And that's where I started to get involved with autism research organizations. And how I did that was that, and I, and I say this a little bit, you know, in my TED talk, but I started getting involved in studies and mostly as, as a subject or participant, answering a lot of questions, giving feedback, a lot of qualitative research studies. So getting a chance to talk about my experiences and both me and my husband also participated in some of those studies. And then so did, so did our family. So we, we participated very early on and it really helped me to start to understand where researchers were thinking, what they were thinking about by the questions they were asking me. And so I kept volunteering my time. I was lucky enough to be able to leave my job, even though it's also, it's a mixed blessing because we had to make sacrifices and, and my husband continued to work and I gave up my job and my career. So, but I was able to do it um, where many, many parents cannot leave their work, but I was able to do it to devote my time to understanding and getting involved in autism research committees. And these are, these are parent committees or what kind of committees? They were what I was at first involved with was, if I think about it, I was sitting on committees that were they were a number of people in the autism field. So they were clinicians, there were some family members, there were some service providers, and there were some researchers all on committees. And it was run through sick kids. And it was looking at how to improve the experiences of families who are diagnosed with autism. And they were multidisciplinary teams um, at sick kids. And we, we were really, it was a high level committee to try and understand better the Uh, pathways of or the journey the uh, autism journey of families so we looked at strategies and how we might be able to improve that through the system so early on I was sitting at the table giving my story telling my story so that's how I volunteered my time early on and then I volunteered on some other studies to be part of the the committee um, so they were called the patient advisory committees of projects and participated in that way. And then my son and I, when he got a little bit older, participated in some um, actual studies that were going on at um, actually at York University at the time to do s- some cognitive behavioral therapy where both parents and kids were uh, and their their children were involved. So I got involved in all kinds of, of projects to be both advising and participating. Um, So that for me is what helped me um, navigate and understand. Connie is a part of the Patient Advisory Committee for PONT, which stands for the Province of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Network. It's one of the largest consortiums dedicated to understanding neurodevelopmental disorders such as ASD. Dr. Lai, Dr. Scherer, and Dr. Amos are also a part of PONT. It's a uh, Ontario-wide uh, initiative that is funded by OBI, the Ontario Brain Institute, and uh, it's led by Evdakia Anagnostu and a number of other people across Ontario, and I'm a co-investigator uh, with POND. And what's great about POND is that it's brought um, many different sites together to try and pool resources to recruit a big sample of individuals, not just with autism spectrum disorder, but with obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as intellectual disability. And so at the core of POND is actually a clinical trials network. So the idea is to um, bring together different sites. So certain uh, treatment innovation uh, options that have really good preliminary data can actually be uh, rigorously studied in the network within uh, individuals who are interested in in clinical trials and who are um, eligible for those studies. And then branching out of POND, there is a very... A rich characterization process to acquire data about 
people from a genetic level, from an epigenetic level, behaviorally, clinically, cognitively. And it's also an incredible resource uh, for uh, research because POND is um, accessible by a lot of people to be able to uh, study the data and uh, look at it in different ways and try and figure out, again, what's distinct or not distinct about children with autism spectrum disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, ADHD, um, and intellectual disability. And so we finished a study a couple of years ago now that was looking at um, the diffusion weighted imaging from PON. So that's um, imaging that looks at uh, white matter connections, so connections uh, from different parts of the brain. And we looked uh, across the sample and we found that there were differences between our uh, different neurodevelopmental disorder groups. So we looked at OCD, ADHD, and ASD compared to healthy controls in what one area of, of the white matter um, that connects the left and right parts of the brain called the corpus callosum. So a major connection. And what we found was that each of those disorders were different in that area from healthy controls, but none of those disorders were actually different from each other when we looked across the brain and across those groups. We also looked at whether uh, symptoms that are consistent with an OCD diagnosis, an autism diagnosis, an ADHD diagnosis uh, related to uh, white matter connections across the sample. And we actually didn't find that, but we did find that adaptive functioning related across the sample. So again, adaptive functioning is your everyday functional level, your ability to uh, function at a social communication and daily living um, level. And what we found was that the higher your functional ability, um, your white matter connections look different. And the lower your functional ability, the more different your uh, white matter connections looked in the other way, uh, whether you had a diagnosis of autism, ADHD, or OCD. So there was something similar whereby across the brain, across a lot of the white matter uh, connections, your white matter connections uh, seem to have a different structure if you had higher functional levels. The PONT study provides a great opportunity to study the heterogeneity in ASD, as well as its overlaps and similarities with other neurodevelopmental disorders. We know that there are like two major like um, approaches. So one is we can borrow the statistical language of uh, a supervised learning approach. So we we know that there might be some factors that are associated with heterogeneity by our you know prior knowledge or in theory. So this could be, as we discussed, the presence or not for intellectual disability, um, the presence of um, other co-occurring mental health conditions like epilepsy or ADHD, anxiety, sex and gender, onset of autism characteristics, the presence or not of what we call regression. So, you know, people develop like sound skills in early years, but then they regressed afterwards versus those who actually had a gradual onset of autism characteristics. So things like these are, you know, likely resources for us to um, delineate heterogeneity. The other possibility, again, borrowing statistical language, would be what we call the unsupervised approaches. So if, in the case that we have large enough pool of people with autism, and then we can, we also have a range of different data for these uh, these people. Uh, what we call deep phenotyping, so from behavior down to neurobiology, down to even genetics, then we can use the -the state-of-the-art clustering algorithms, for example, and trying to identify from the data what are the possible subgroups embedded in this phenotypic term of autism spectrum. And this approach can also cut across the, you know, the clinical diagnostic labels. So um, again, like many works done here in Toronto, are looking at these clustering across diagnostic categories. So we're basically informed by the data structure um, that can, you know, help us to understand the subgroups. And the next step would be the validation of those subgroups. Basically, how are they meaningful in terms of um, neurobiological substrates, in terms of likely treatment responses or their phenotypes or even to some extent would they be corresponding to our prior knowledge which is that to what extent these are correlated to the supervised learning that we we derived from from the existing knowledge so i I believe that it needs to be it needs to be um taking multiple approaches and we do need to have big data and and when i say big data it's actually 
a large amount of sample sizes, but also a deep phenotyping and really large amount of feature spaces as well and across levels, because I think this is really what we need to rely on in order to adequately cluster or you know, uh, subgroup people uh, who are having a same like, phenotypic label, which may or may not be a valid one, to be honest. Future studies need to not only recruit more adults and children with ASD, but more specifically, they need to recognize and recruit diverse subpopulations. As Connie mentions, establishing a sense of trust between researchers and families is imperative to increasing their involvement in research. The idea is that I, I think what I give is my opinion and feedback, but it's not always based on just what I need. It's based on just what I think and what what I've experienced or what, but it's also based more on the fact that I've built relationships of trust with groups of researchers. And so it's, it's based on trusting relationships and building those partnerships. So to have the, the quality input into research is to really be valued as an equal participant or having a voice at the table, but based on a trusted relationship. So it's not just based on what my experience was versus somebody else's because everybody has a different experience. But it's just based on knowing and appreciating and respecting what they're bringing to the table to be able to, to give my feedback and to feel comfortable in doing that. So I've, I've had many years now of experience of doing that, and that's what motivated me to go back to school and study in the health sciences and really understand how r- research can have more impact into the lives of, of um, patients and their families. And I think that research can be misunderstood, like you say, of, oh, scientists in a back room and what, how do they know and relate to families and what they're going through, and that they really do really do want to understand and want to engage and want to know what the issues are and want to be inspired by by families and patients and are inspired. Moving forward, there's promise that the research happening right here in Toronto will lead to a better understanding of ASD, as well as better interventions for those affected by it. Thank you to our guests. Connie Putterman and Roya Botlani for sharing their personal experiences, as well as Dr. Steve Scherer, Dr. Stephanie Amos, and Dr. Meng Chuan Lai for telling us about the exciting research that they're conducting to better understand ASD. Content development for this episode was done by Grace, Aditi, Hadjer, Thamia, and myself. Audio engineering was done by Kat. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more resources. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.